Hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Will, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic. How about yourself? I am. I'm here. You know, I'm doing okay. I'm here. That's great. Yeah. That's what matters. I'm with you. That's right. We've got a great guest today. Uh, Really one of my favorite colleagues, um, someone I've known for many, many years here in New York City. He's a brilliant chef, um, Chef Michael Anthony. He's the chef of Gramercy Tavern, which is an institution here in New York City. But he began his food career in Tokyo before going to culinary school in Paris. So he has this really interesting path to becoming a chef. And then at really the height of his career in the midst of, you know, when everything was going right for him, he suddenly got this pain in his chest and had a massive heart attack mm-hmm. um, and, yeah. and had to have had to have bypass surgery. And then he even showed up to work. I think a lot of people out there that are type A yeah. driven people, men, women, whoever, are hopefully this conversation is going to be a wake up call for them yeah. to realize what is going to be your wake-up call? You have to deal with the things in your life and your stress levels and how you're treating your body before it's too late. I mean, he was lucky, but yeah. many people aren't. Well, Mike, is he's such an amazingly generous and kind human being that knowing him, I know how much it, it must have taken him to actually... He was talking about... He started with these chest pains. He was at the um, 11 Madison Park book release party, um, which I was also there too. And I had no idea. I mean, until he was telling us this story, I had no idea that that was the beginning of his heart attack. Because I remember very, very well him having the heart attack and hearing about it a couple of days later. And for him to actually... He went to Daniel Hume and said, Chef, I think I need to go. I don't feel so great. For Mike to actually say that, you know, mm-hmm. it, it kind of... I don't know. The, the industry that we work in... And I'm so glad that he's he's one of those people that's changing it. But historically, if you're a chef, you just shut up and put your head down and you don't complain and you work through the pain. And uh, his is a case of thank God that he had people around him that saw how severe this was Yeah, because he wouldn't have made it. Absolutely. And Michael is also a board member for God's Love We Deliver, which I loved learning about. They cook and deliver medically tailored meals for people living with illnesses in the New York City area, which I know you know a lot about Mm -hmm. as well. It's such a great organization. And I think that, you know, it really speaks to everything that Michael believes in as a chef, that food really is an expression of love and cooking for someone is an expression of compassion and love. And, uh, it's just, it's, it's great to hear him talk about it. And he's done so much. He got me involved in God's love. We deliver maybe like eight or nine years ago. And, um, and they do fantastic stuff. Great stuff. So uh, guys, I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. So let's get right into it. Here's our conversation with Michael Anthony. We're so excited to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Good to see you. You know what, before we get into your bio and who you are and how you got here, Can you take us through, I think it was probably like four in the afternoon in 2011, and uh, you basically died. (laughs) So I want to start with a crisis, and then I want to know how we got there. Yeah, it was one ordinary uh, afternoon in the middle of an ordinary week and a not-so-stressful time in my life. And um, you might smirk at that, given the fact that, um, you know, our lives in the kitchen uh, are not exactly normal. (laughs) (laughs) Or (laughs) stress-free. But, uh, yeah, I was in a a really great place in life, working at Gramercy Tavern, thrilled to, you know, to be working on that stage, surrounded by supportive people. And it's it's actually a funny story. I, I had stepped out of the restaurant to attend a, a book launch. And it was now, we, we know a prominent book. It was the first 11 Madison Park 
a cookbook. Uh-huh. And Daniel, Daniel Hume and Will Gadara were very proud to to be launching the book at a at a neighboring store and. You know, I was there too. Is that right? Oh my God, that's so crazy. I didn't realize that I never put two and two together, but yeah, I was there. I, I, and that I was on my way to work and you're on your way to the hospital. <laughs> Little did you know. It, well, I was happy to be there. I, I was, I was uh, showing my support, proud to, to congratulate the guys. And uh, I remember being in a circle of, of folks, group of uh, literary people, and I was really excited to, to meet them. There were some, mm-hmm. some people that I'd never met before. And someone handed me a glass of champagne. It's just a great, you know, one mm-hmm. of these really, I felt so lucky to be in that particular place. And it was then I felt some extreme um, symptoms, um, shooting pain and searing headache out of, the, out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And my first reaction was, did you eat today? <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of took a step back because I was, my, my first reaction was I was embarrassed. Mm-hmm. I, I thought I was going to pass out. And... I didn't really know what was happening. And so I kind of just stepped away from the conversation as quickly as I could and just started to, you know, try to breathe slowly. I usually do that to center Mm -hmm. myself when I'm feeling nervous or particularly tired. And at that moment, Daniel came around the corner and, and, you know, said hi and patted me on the back and said, I really want to sign a book for you. I said, I'm not feeling so well. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think I, I think I need to, to step away. And he's like, "No, no, man, I want to sign a book for you." <laughs> and he insisted, and I. You, know, so you can't I, say no to the Swiss, <laughs> right? I waited it out, and um, and and I uh, later I told him, "Hey, man, I really almost died to get this book from you. This was a very precious book on my shelf." Uh, and I didn't. I was a little confused, and so I I made probably what was not a smart idea, but I went back to the restaurant. It's funny mm-hmm. that... Yeah, we do that. That is just, that is, you know, the center, the way I find myself centered. I went back to Gramercy Tavern and I was still not feeling well at all. And I did not understand what was happening. And I asked one of the sous chefs to just sit with me in, mm-hmm. in the office for a second while I tried to catch my breath. And um, 15 minutes later... Um, you know, I had uh, texted my wife, and I was on my way to the hospital. Uh, and as it turned out, I didn't have a heart attack. I w- was in the ambulance, and uh, the, uh, the the driver was running tests immediately. I asked if he would take me to Wild Cornell, not really knowing where I should go. He said, uh-huh. we don't take requests around here. <laughs> um, and fortunately, Gramercy Tavern is, you know, conveniently located mm-hmm. um, near Beth Israel Hospital. And I was waiting in the ER when my wife showed up and the driver um, kind of joyfully smacked my foot and said, don't worry about it, pal. You're not having a heart attack. You'll be fine. And uh, I didn't feel fine. last words. (laughs) (laughs) It took a little while to to diagnose what had happened to me. And as it turns out, it's a, you know, the best we can say is a genetic disorder. Mm -hmm. In in that moment, I I had what's called um, an aortic dissection. And it's when a a blood vessel, and in that case, an important one, um, starts to unravel. Uh And after many, many, many questions, uh, you you can imagine that I asked, um, why? me why now what did, mm-hmm. what happened what what is the reason for this how could i ever avoid this again uh we learned that you know it's it's not related in this case to you know to the surrounding factors it was completely completely genetic mm-hmm. i in my case i got very lucky that while i was in the hospital a former chief of surgery was making the rounds with the doctors and uh while it was a bit of a mystery uh to to the team there at the moment he quickly diagnosed my problem mm-hmm. and, and they rushed me into surgery which lasted about eight hours and 
um, included all kinds of crazy uh, facts. When you read the surgical mm-hmm. report afterwards, it was just you know astounding to to read what they can do and what they what they did do in order to um, reroute my circulation and and uh, fix some important um, parts of my circulatory wow. system. Oh my god. Um, one you know very traumatic experience of having this all happen in uh, such a short period of time and you know the only question I asked on the way to the ER was do I have time for a second opinion can I can I have someone <laughs> else see me and they said the only thing you have going for you is you're 10 minutes away from surgery wow and wow. my wife had to also experience that in real time and that you know those are moments in life that you you can't really plan for no um, and the best you can do is, Hang on. God. What's so crazy is that in those moments of absolute crisis and the the sensation of feeling something you've never felt before is a really, really scary, scary feeling. And I I mean, I can relate to a very similar situation when I I had had spinal surgery for the second time. And uh, five days later, I just needed to get back to the restaurant. I just felt so out of sorts. I, I have to get back to the restaurant which is obviously foolish. And I went back to the restaurant and I tried to work in the kitchen five days out of back surgery, started getting these chest pains. I thought I was having a heart attack, but I, I needed to be in a comfortable place, a place that was familiar to me that had some sort of routine. So I stayed there and then it became apparent there was something severely wrong. And, uh, and so they called the ambulance and I, I ended up going to the hospital and I had pulmonary embolism. So I had the same sort of moment where like you in, in crisis, you crave something familiar. You crave that routine, that safe place. It's really, I mean, it's crazy. So though I want to know, so what it was, what it was 10 minutes from when you left GT to, to Beth Israel. I mean, what was the time frame? How long before you were under the knife? Uh, it, they're actually, um, it's a short ride to the hospital, but given the fact that, you know, most people that, um, that experience this sort of condition don't live that close to a hospital or to care. And mm-hmm. so un- unfortunately there is a, a very high rate of people who don't make it mm-hmm. to, to find help. And so one quite fortunate thing of living right here in the heart of New York city is mm-hmm. helps not far away. Diagnosing problems like this is difficult because they don't always show, you know, those symptoms right away. Um, and so, unfortunately, what's also uh, frequent with people who have this condition is that the problem is misdiagnosed. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, we we tend to shy away from being able to, one, listen to our bodies and two, you know, ask the right questions or seek the right help in, yeah. in the moment. Uh, so frequently people will feel symptoms like this and decide that they're just going to lie down right. and sleep it off. And yeah, that produces results that, yeah. are, that are not good. I mean, thank God you have the wherewithal to ask your sous chef to sit with you. Yeah. Because if you had just gone into, the, into your office by yourself and sat there, who knows if you would have made it to the hospital. Well, I guess the good news is that, you know, working in a job that's very physical, in some senses, we, we are really in tune with our bodies. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know, in a chef's world, I think we are both in tune, but also ignore. Mm-hmm. Um, you we're, know, yeah, signs. we're taught, we're conditioned to forget, put, to put your head down, just, you know, work and don't complain. We work with pain. Yeah. And that's, that's not new to anyone who, you know, works in a physical environment like right. that, but especially in the kitchen, we, we work through discomfort, we work through outright pain, mm-hmm. we work through emotional distress. And we've now seen, and fortunately in our industry, um, these issues are now being talked about, yeah, um, yeah. whether they're physical or uh, emotional and mental. 
um, people have come forward and told compassionate stories about, you know, the the distress that they feel and how many years they haven't addressed it. In my case, I didn't have years. I, right. you know, back yeah. to your question, I I was in the hospital for uh, the matter of a few hours, and it was early in the morning when when the doctors finally diagnosed it. And um, well, I feel nothing but, you know thankful for for their persistence and intuition and the decision uh, by the ER doctor I can imagine how difficult he, you know doctors in, in ER rooms across the country must face these uh, sorts of decisions you know many times a day mm-hmm. but when there isn't a clear diagnosis what do you do right you have an mm-hmm. ER room that's filled with patients and overflowing you know trying to manage manage what what must be uh, you know difficult uh, financial uh, operation as well as physically crowded spaces and trying to help people and sort out their, mm-hmm. their issues. So um, the fact that he said, I'd like for you to stay here. I mm-hmm. wanna I wanna monitor you. I wanna watch what's happening. I, I don't understand exactly what's going on. His moment of pause saved my life. Yeah. I'm curious the a traumatic health event like that can be an awakening for many people, a spiritual awakening or just I want to do my life differently. Was that the case for you? You know it's a great question, and I I have thought about what the impact of that experience has been on, on my life. And I'll share one. It's a bit of a strange sensation before I get to, you know, what I've walked away with. In the hospital, I uh, I had a, a few conversations with uh, a family member who, who was a psychiatrist. And he had studied the effects of trauma and surgery on patients' subconscious, the the way in which, we, while we may not be uh, conscious for you know the time in that case a long a long surgery, there was a, a period during the surgery in which they, in order to do that kind of work to your heart, they have to reroute the circulation and it involves stopping your heart, and then fortunately in my case it also involved um, <laughs> restarting the heart and uh, rerouting the circulation, and as I was kind of uh, coming to in the few days after the surgery, I experienced, um, it's really hard for, to put words to it, but very um, kind of recognizable phases of um, waking up. And I don't mean coming back to consciousness. Mm, yeah. I mean, there there were moments in which I felt like I was in the room and I recognized where I was and who was around me and what I was feeling for the most part. Um, and And then as if someone turned a switch on, a realization of 10, 15, 20 more details Mm -hmm. around me. And that's not just kind of my perception growing and kind of recognizing what's happening outside the windows of the room, but this in the the few days that followed, this very hard to describe but noticeable sensation of kind of um, reinvigoration and um, just recognition. It felt like it came in surges. And, you know, I, I, I don't really know how that, you know, touches on on medical research, but it was an interesting point uh, that I've come back to as I've been thinking about what what has the impact of a traumatic experience like that been on my life. For the most part, I felt just a kind of calm sense of existentialism, uh, a, a thankfulness. I recognized what had happened to me soon after mm-hmm. the the doctors explained. I felt a lot of physical discomfort just given the you right. know, the nature of that surgery. But the reality of it is, is I, you know, I felt a very warm sense of joyfulness. I felt mm-hmm. quite lucky, and that might be an obvious, you know, um, 
realization from you know from going through a, a scary event like that. But um, in the days and weeks that followed, I, I feel lucky because it was a, a rather brief moment and the recovery from it didn't involve much more than just a, a sense of focus and, and calm and uh, a certain sense of persistence. But I did feel this notion of, well, I've never taken any any day for granted. I tend to try to be very present mm-hmm. um, in each and every day. I felt a sense of um, overwhelming thanks wow. that has been helpful. And I think just we all search for uh, for that feeling sometimes, you know, on normal days, on tough mm-hmm. days, um, good times and bad. Um, it was much easier to channel that for a long period of time. And I felt like I've tried to cultivate that sensation. Um, I do it through breathing. I, I, I do it through just, you know, my inner monologue. Uh, and, and in ways, some ways I feel quite thankful that something difficult like that happened to me because it 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 was a it was a resurgence like that resurgence that i felt it was a just a bit of an awakening and you know having that happen in in my life is uh rare uh given uh, my young age my 40s and yet that's it was a uh, an interesting time in my life to to feel that sense of you know reawakening yeah definitely. um as i uh got better you know questions came up mm-hmm. um immediately of wow can i can i get back in the kitchen and right. do a job that's so physical what what was the cause of this what do i have to do to avoid this um how how can i live better and, and what changes need to happen uh, did it change did the health event change how you cooked at all or well it it shows um how i eat it changed mm-hmm. how i eat i and, and in fact it wasn't so much that it changed what i eat it it made me pay attention to the the kind of way i eat and mm-hmm. you know i told you my first reaction when i started feeling that intense pain was did you eat today right because what was quite common was yeah. skipping breakfast lunch dinner then- Finishing service. Eating out of a quart container or something. Realizing that yeah. I really hadn't eaten a meal right. during the course of the day. And that's a pretty common, common occurrence. In, I mean, in our industry, it's really, really, it's amazing how frequently, and I know when I was going through my own transformation, I realized, oh my God, I'm I'm always constantly in a state of, of not really being hungry, but not being not hungry. I've just been eating small amounts of food throughout the course of the day. And then when I do actually have a meal, it's standing at 4.15 in the afternoon out of a quart container half eating, half working. And by nine o'clock, 10 o'clock in the middle of service, I realized I still have half a quart container of family meal that I'm sitting right there, sitting there. (laughs) And you're not actually there. There's, there's zero mindfulness when it comes to food. You're not really being present with a meal. Plus there's the notion of when we say this, that we eat small amounts throughout the day, some people might say, Oh, well, wait, we know now that breaking up meals and eating several meals during the day could, can be a really healthy way to, you know, to, to eat, but that's not exactly, that's not what we're doing in, in the kitchen because, it's, you know, you're never slowing down. You're not actually taking a moment right. to, to sit and let your body relax. You're, you're not giving your body a chance to digest the food. You're, you're literally gulping down for sustenance what you can in a moment. And yeah. we know that those, well, when we're young and, you know, in great shape, sometimes we don't feel the, the effect of that on our bodies. And, you know, as we get older, we, most of us recognize yeah. that that, that yeah. has, a, it takes a, a quite, quite an impact on So you us. ate more mindfully since that taking time. the time to sit down mm-hmm. uh, thinking about not skipping meals um, focusing on portioning obviously aware of the the balance of, of healthy ingredients but the the great news is that 
you know, while it's challenging, a challenging world out there in terms of finding healthy, fresh ingredients at Gramercy Tavern and, and at home surrounded by, you know, farmers in this area, there is no shortage of healthy food. Right. So that's a that's yeah. a an important thing and something that I don't take for granted, this question of access to healthy mm-hmm. foods. I grew up in the Midwest eating a all American diet that is, you know, problematic from start to mm-hmm. finish. And but I don't I, I recognize that there is um, whether we're surrounded by healthy foods or in a place where it's very difficult to get healthy foods, mm-hmm. it is always a challenge. Sure. This is difficult for all of us to work our way through our lives and figure out how to carve out uh, moments, how to plan, and how to, you know, create a plan that is right for, for your uh-huh. body. I'm curious to know, the early part of your career, I mean, you started cooking in Japan, and you kind of, if, if I remember correctly, you sort of fell into cooking by accident. It wasn't like you were like, I'm going to Japan to be to learn Japanese cuisine. You were there for other reasons. Were you teaching English or you studying there? That's right, yeah. I graduated from school the day after I finished my undergraduate degree in languages and uh-huh. business. I, I left the country and moved to Japan, and it was, you know, an exploration. Uh-huh. I, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was passionate about, you know, taking the time I had spent studying Japanese in school and turning that into, you know, a good use of the language. Right. And I was very eager to to explore. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was uh, a, a bit random. And it was while I was living there, kind of far from family and friends mm-hmm. and doing a little soul searching in that introspective period after school, that, um, that I... I decided to act on something that I had felt a few years earlier, my interest in uh-huh. in food, and had never really, you know, kind of imagined that that would be a part of my life. I, right. I knew that I was interested in in studying food, but, um, you know, I always thought that would be just an outside interest. Was there any, as you, after your, after your surgery, and with kind of this renewed sense of mindfulness with eating and being aware of eating, did that suddenly, did you start to remember, wait a second, when I was in Japan, there's a very different approach to the relationship that people have with food. Did any of that start to come back to you? Well, I've, I've tried to cultivate that throughout the years, and I've worked in a variety of restaurants. That that has always been a, an interest of mine. And, and again, it's really how, how disciplined and how adamant we are to creating the world that we live in. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about this. We... We've grown up working in a in a kitchen world where we kind of surrender most of our control over that and surrender it to the workings of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that I'm lucky in a sense that being in charge of, of the kitchen that I work in, there is all sorts of autonomy in thinking about how we relate to each other, how much time we spend preparing the food that we eat ourselves. And I've always wanted to um, cultivate a... Um, a return to, yeah, that feeling that I experienced when I first started uh, learning about Japanese food and culture. It's this sense of um, harmony and mm-hmm. a straightforward approach to eating seasonal foods. Mm-hmm. The, they've refined this art to, you know, to, to the highest level, but it, it's certainly something that we're capable of cultivating here. Mm-hmm. We know that we're surrounded by interesting stories of all kinds. Healthy foods um, are, are now more plentiful than ever before. We've seen a transformation in local agriculture. Um, the the access and joyfulness of uh, open green markets in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, the ability to tap into CSAs that connect us directly with farms. An understanding of kind of like having a camera in the field and feeling that sense of satisfaction of knowing that you're in touch with mm-hmm. 
the physical world around around you. I, I love living in New York City. I, I live in Manhattan. I work in Manhattan. I I get to travel a lot, so there's a, there is a small sense of balance there. But I think that I've what I've sensed is that uh, both in myself and and most everyone around me that we all yearn for this. Uh, reconnection to the natural world, mm-hmm. and whether that's through the foods that that we eat, or you know the the way in which the the time that we take to mm-hmm. to feel yeah. that serenity, yeah. I think it's a lot. Important. Of, I think a lot of people will relate to that. Not just chefs out there, but I, just consulting patients. This is an American problem. This is a Western problem. People are just go go go. They're not sitting and being connecting with the food and with yeah. with the world around them. So I think I think this is inspirational. So you you have two books: um, the Gramercy Tavern cookbook, which is Gramercy Taverns now in its 25th years. And then after your surgery, you wrote a second book, Vias for Vegetables, uh, with a dear friend of ours, Dorothy. And Amazing uh, Dorothy Kalins. Yeah. And you, I mean, it, it's very clear to me that in that book, which is a beautiful book, you solidly really made this commitment to the notion of food as medicine, that Mother Nature is super smart. She put medicine in the food. It's right there for you. But I want to know, let's call a spade a spade. You work in in one of the most exclusive restaurants in the country. And what we do and what we believe in is most needed by the people that will never, ever get to eat in your restaurant. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I, I really appreciate about you is is your commitment to making sure that the people that need that information and that that and that sustenance most have access to it. Can you talk to us a little bit about your, your work with God's Love We Deliver? Yeah. And 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 how the idea and everything that you've learned through your own experience and, and this commitment to food as medicine now plays out into your work outside of the restaurant. Yeah. Well, you're, you know, you're describing a, uh, a challenging uh, part of our, our world. We, by working in a, a restaurant here in Manhattan that, um, it has been around for 25 years. Um, that's launched the careers of so many people who, you know, are are now legendary in our industry. We have to ask ourselves the question: While we're talking about healthy foods, we talk about cooking in a way that's full of energy. We're expressing our connection to our region. There is a little bit of an aching feeling there that we're talking to a very small group yeah. of people that that benefit from from experiencing that. I see most of my work at Gramercy Tavern through the lens of education under mm-hmm. this kind of overriding idea of what makes me feel passionate about being in this industry is the notion of education. And some of that is translated really directly in right. terms of Mentorship staff training and, yeah. and seeing people you know, learn about food and, and hospitality. I take a lot of pleasure um, in solidarity that's generated mm. through our industry. Some of that is um, in in kind of blurring the edges of how fine dining can approach the question of eating well, our choices in um, ingredients, the way in which we tell stories with the, the dishes that we create, uh, now more than ever um, can serve as a source of inspiration and appreciation and and awareness of the world around us. But again, it still falls a little bit short when we when we talk about this question of access and, and need. And this feeling that, that you brought up is something that pushed me to explore one of New York City's great non-for-profit organizations called God's Love We Deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, they're located on 6th Avenue and Spring Street and have been uh, since the mid-'80s when the organization uh, was created by one person, 
uh, who cooked uh, hot meals for one of her neighbors that was homebound due to um, AIDS. And it was in a, a time in this country when it was nearly impossible mm-hmm. to um, to get a grip on how many people were inflicted with this disease and our inability to recognize uh, and accept the yeah. the disease and to start to deal with it. She did it uh, in a very direct grassroots way, and she would walk these meals from her mm-hmm. apartment across the street to her, her neighbor, uh, and it was taking care of him on a daily basis. Uh, a local priest saw her walking back and forth yeah. and said, I see you following this path uh. every day. What is it that you're doing? She said, I'm cooking for, for my neighbor, and I'm delivering him a fresh hot meal. And he said, well, that's not just food that you're delivering. That's God's love. Uh-huh. And it's such a, a beautiful beginning of that yeah. organization. And they have, uh, over the years, grown immensely. Um, they now take care of people with over 200 different uh, diseases. They serve 7,500 meals per day within yeah. the uh, five boroughs. They are approaching the story of uh, how we can lower health care costs across the cr- mm-hmm. country by showing how people who benefit from their service of eating healthy, medically tailored, mm-hmm. nutritious, and attractive meals being delivered by a person, so right. with human contact, can decrease the rate at which people are um, hosp- yeah. hospitalized or, or re-hospitalized. Yeah, and great. how how people who may not actually get better in their lives, um, who are in long-term managed care, can lead a much happier, um, satisfied life and, and a healthier life. And, and then to take that with the with the facility that they have now, the new facility, which is an incredible, incredible facility, they really have taken the notion of food as medicine to a completely different level where there is prescriptive food. Depending upon every meal is tailored to, to the, that person's specific nutritional needs. And that is remarkable. To yeah. see this all happen yeah. is really incredible. The level of sophistication is amazing. And... Um, you know the depth and determination of, of the group and the, the the number of people who are associated with the with the organization is growing. They have become the go to source for healthy food in in New York City. We've had a chance to you know have some great conversations mm-hmm. in front of their members. They're they're passionate eaters. They're passionate people, and I I feel like I've learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel a sense of satisfaction and being able to to take you know uh, what we do for a living and translate that directly into helping people who who really need it the most. Need it the most. <laughs> wow. That's intense. Can you imagine Will like being at work and you know trying to ignore the fact that your body was shutting down and having a heart attack? Yeah. And what he said about being almost embarrassed right he didn't want to, he didn't want to fall over in front of somebody he didn't want to pass out i mean i can only imagine that pressure you're at this book release you're around tons of people um and just the fact that that he had someone stand near him i think is really important and something that when we're up against a health problem to to make sure that we're getting the help that we need yeah. and hopefully uh this conversation really spoke to people because look i mean heart attack strokes it's a lot of people in our culture today it's like one in two uh, people will have a heart attack and the majority of of heart attack and stroke the first symptom quote unquote is death actually sadly oh my God. <laughs> so it's not to be too super morbid but i mean the reality is we need to start looking at our health and and being due diligent about our health and getting checkups from our doctor seeking out uh, answers because oftentimes it's it's too late for people and they don't have that second chance that that michael 
had. Man, I'm so glad that he had the wherewithal to ask for help, that he was around people that were able to help him. I don't know if I ever told you, that, Will, but when, when I was really sick, I was on a bunch of meds and I was in Thailand and um, I was with friends having breakfast and I had a grand mal seizure and it was, it was, I don't remember any of it, but apparently I've seen people have seizures before, which is really scary. Thank God I was with people who cared about me, who uh, were looking out for me. They got me to the hospital, but I kept thinking, God, what would have happened if I had been walking across the street by myself in Thailand? You know, what yeah. would have happened? And it's it's just a it's an incredible wake up call to listen mm-hmm. to those little things when you're when something doesn't feel right. And we all know there's a difference between like feeling a little off and having a sensation that you've never felt before. Mm-hmm. And you know when something just feels a little off, and, you, and you're feeling something you've never felt before, ask for help, man. Get yeah. somebody, get the people on your team around you, because you are loved, and we need you around. Definitely, Seamus. Well, next time you're in New York City, check out Michael's food at Gramercy Tavern, and pick up a copy of his book, Vias for Vegetables. It's a great book. Got a question you'd like us to answer? The Goop team is keeping a running list for us, so just hit them up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. At the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And I love to talk about food and cooking and, well, reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook. As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits. All right, so we have a question from one of our listeners out there. The question is, what do you think of the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger? Um, Well, my take on this is that both the, for those of you that don't know, the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger are, um, they are meat substitute burgers that, I actually don't know that much much about them, but I know that they are... um, Ooh, are they soy-based? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm guessing there's... I know one of them has beet juice in it to make it look like it bleeds. Yeah, that's the Impossible Burger. That's the Impossible Burger. Yeah. Uh, my feeling is, um, I really love what, what Melissa Hartwig says, our friend Melissa Hartwig. She says, no sex with your clothes on. Yeah. So if you're going to eat a burger, eat a burger. Swipe out foods. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to hit the buzzer and say, eh, I'm the Impossible Burger, Impossible burger and the Beyond Burger. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I, I think that they cause me digestive problems when I have them. And I think because there's so much additives and processed components to it. Uh, I like like a good black bean burger. I do like those occasionally. And I do like the fact that the Impossible Burger recently went gluten-free, so people have gluten problems. I think that's a move in the right direction. Mm-hmm. But there's, if you look at the label on these burgers, there's so much junk in them or right. additives and processed foods that I'd rather just stick to like as real food and whole food as you can get. Close to the original, the original form of the food. I got to agree with you. I'm not into Franken food. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.